0: This is the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, in the news, Bombardier's long-term business jet strategy, which includes a possible blended wing jet, the possibility of building another AN-225, a verdict in the antitrust lawsuit between American and Sabre, Mexico and the FAA's International Aviation Safety Assessment Program. ALPA, who doesn't want to increase the pilot retirement age. A class-action lawsuit alleges that Southwest Airlines concealed safety defects on the MAX. And beware the Facebook scam offering free tickets. Plus, we have a Nexus interview report. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode seven hundred and three of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Max Trescott, host of Aviation News Talk Podcast, a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on the cirrus aircraft.
1: Seven hundred and three? That's amazing. I know. Who to thunk? Oh, uh, indeed. Yeah, this was just a little idea you and uh, Courtney had, and man, look at that, 700 episodes later. Anyway, great to be here with you again. I think Courtney probably feels like uh, we're, we're nuts to have done
0: this for all those, <laughs> all those years. Uh, coming up soon on our anniversary. What anniversary is this? 14th year coming up? It'll be in June, I think. We, I think we will be our 14th year producing this podcast, which has uh, been quite a ride. Yeah. And think of all the fun he's missed out by not having stuck around. That's right. All oh, that serious job and, you know, employment and all that kind of stuff. Ah. But also with us is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian, and he currently hides out at the American Helicopter Museum. Hides out is a good thing. I, I, I am
2: coming down from Avgeek High, you know, having been to an air show for the first time in like three years. Yeah. It was, it was a good day. We'll
0: talk about that later. Very good. Also with us this episode is our main man,
3: Micah. Hey everybody, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me along for this particular ride and I'm looking forward to a good show. Great. All right, let's jump into some aviation news from the
0: past week. Are you guys all ready? Ready from the West. Mainly ready. I'm ready. Her story comes from AIN Online. Bombardier sees blended wing future for business jets. This came from Ebase 2022. Bombardier showed off a model of their blended wing ecojet concept. How Bombardier is apparently looking into the future with respect to reducing carbon emissions on business aircraft and uh, they say they've got three pillars that they're looking at here. Aerodynamic improvements is the first one. The second one is sustainable aviation fuel. And the third pillar here is new propulsion systems, which means things like hydrogen or hybrid electric or even all electric. And so they showed off this model blended wing concept jet at, as I said, at eBase. And I guess I really wasn't expecting that. Every... every um blended wing model or design or drawing that i've ever seen i think is a commercial jetliner and here we have a business jet looking at a at a blended wing concept yeah it's not really a blended wing though you don't think so
2: no i mean it it it's not what i would think is a blended wing which means that there's very little fuselage and it's all wing like a flying wing this is more shaped. It's got a fuselage and a wing, but yeah, it's continuous. I don't know if I would actually call it what what the original blended
0: wing concept was. The Boeing concept, yeah, is maybe a little bit more blended than than this is, but this is definitely not a you know a tube and wing um, kind of uh, kind of model. But it does have the usual tail mounted engines that you see on these kinds of aircraft. Uh, Two. Tail-mounted engines, but they've been using this for flight testing, wind tunnel testing, apparently test bed for concepts that they might introduce into the into their existing models. And uh, this is a pretty small one; it's a seven percent uh, scale size of roughly the Bombardier's uh, global family of aircraft. But they've been they've been working on this for uh, the past three years uh, in secret. They say, Uh, and they're also now building a model that's around twice the size of this one that they've uh, displayed, and uh, they expect to start flying it in uh, Quebec over the next six to 12 months. I don't know if flying it means actually flying it or if that means flying it, quote unquote, in the wind tunnel.
3: You know, this kind of concept has been around for a long, long time. I'm I'm sure you guys grew up reading popular science and popular mechanics um, like I did. And I remember seeing drawings of this back when I first started reading it back when I was 10 years old. And I won't say how many decades ago that was. And it took really two things for it to happen before they could create something like this. The first was, um, the idea of, of, well, the composite fuselage and, uh, or fiber, um, Carbon fiber fuselage, like we have in the uh, in the seven eighty seven and the A three fifty, and that was actually, I think, the easy part. The hard part, from my perspective, is coming up with a design, coming up with passengers that didn't care whether or not they had windows. And we talked about that. Uh, in fact, I think I wrote a piece about that on uh, on episode uh, three twenty eight about uh, windowless aircraft. And for a long time, people said, "Can't won't fly without a window. Have to have a window." And now. And the 787 kind of proved that again, because now the, the windows are uh, controlled by uh, by the flight attendants, and they're turned down sometimes, and passengers don't even know, don't even care. They're never looking out a window anymore, which lets you create an aircraft that's much stronger. Windows are the weak point.
1: Yeah, I wanted to see, are all blended aircraft necessarily windowless? And so a little bit ago, I, I look up on Wikipedia, and they said, no, actually, that's not always the case. There are some blended wing models. Uh, with with windows though they point out what you point out which is they have the same trade-offs with uh, aircraft that have windows which is you add weight and you reduce reduce strength now i can see getting away with that on an airliner where you just tell people hey guess what by flying without a window you just save five dollars people like oh yeah yeah i'll take the cheaper (laughs) ticket but on a business jet that's a very different experience you're going to be spending 10 20 grand uh, per seat uh, depending on you know the well not pursuit but for the for the for the jet and I think those people are want to be able to look out the window <laughs> your paint top
0: dollar you want to view right yeah. well
1: of course if you're if
0: you're looking at a smaller size jet like is the case here uh, you you have some the different considerations, or or they are not maybe as difficult in some ways as for a larger commercial jet, right? There's the whole stadium seating concept in a blended wing body that maybe holds 150 passengers or 200 or, or more passengers. Uh, but when you're dealing with uh, something of this size, a business jet, you don't have maybe as, as difficult a task figuring out how you're going to do the seating inside. And David, maybe that's partly why this is, uh, you know, the shape that it that it is, it's not as, like you say, as blended and as, as sort of a big open area inside the uh, the aircraft. The thing that impressed me the most is that Bombardier is investing in looking at the future and thinking about how to uh, uh, create business class aircraft that uh, are more environmentally responsible. This is one of those pillars that that they mentioned on the aerodynamics of the thing, you know, blended wing or this shape has has some advantages from that standpoint. All right. Speaking of uh, interesting aircraft, uh, this uh, came from Aerotime.Aero. Ukrainian President Zelensky wants to rebuild an AN-225 to honor hero pilots. The headline says Rebuild, I think really what they mean is build another AN-225, not rebuild the one that was destroyed by Russia. And I think that was in March, back in March this year, 2022. But uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky referenced the AN-225. He was holding an online meeting with Ukrainian students. Um, He said that there had been plans to build a second AN-225, but that project uh, was shelved because of costs and some other things. But here he says, in this case, it's not a matter of money, it's a matter of ambition. Yeah, pretty cool. I think we'd like to see
1: the, to see the AN-225 replaced. It's not a matter of money if you have a billion dollars sitting around. It. So yeah. They say 800 million. I had seen something that was a higher figure than that when they first mentioned that this was destroyed. It was well over a billion dollars, so it's uh, it's a rather ambitious project. But I can also see this as being symbolic. Uh, they may never build it, but just saying that they're going to is right. kind of a nice thing for people to kind of rally around. But we can hope that they might
0: come back with a with another one. Now, it's an old design. I mean, this was uh, David, if I remember correctly, this was originally designed to carry the, the Soviet version of the space shuttle, like we do with or like we did rather with the with the seven four seven.
2: Yeah, it was designed to carry the um, Buran. It's oversized. You know, it is the largest aircraft in the world, or was the largest aircraft in the world, um, and was designed to carry the Soviet space shuttle and as well as its fuel tanks, etc. Um, where we were taking our center fuel tanks for the space shuttle by barge around Florida, these you don't have the waterways in the Soviet Union, so you needed a large air-to-air transport to carry carry this stuff. And the 225 debuted in Paris carrying the Buran space shuttle. That program went out because of the Soviet Union collapse and Ukraine took control of the Antonov program. Now, there is another fuselage um, that is three-quarters of the way complete, but it doesn't have the wings or the engines yet. And I know China was looking to restart up the line. Um, I don't know where that is, but it's possible that it can come back.
0: Where, do you know, where is that second aircraft that was never completed? Is that in Ukraine or is that in Russia?
2: I believe that's in China now. I believe ah, they transferred oh. it over.
0: Huh, that's interesting yeah so i wonder if they would think about using that as the basis for for a replacement or if they're thinking there may be you know an entirely new airframe but yeah i mean we all miss the the an-225 with its six six jet engines uh an impressive an impressive sight for sure
1: i've seen one of the antonovs uh, here at uh, moffett field i I believe it's the 124, which has occasionally uh, come in. Lockheed has a satellite manufacturing facility that's right adjacent to to the airport, so I'm guessing that's probably what they were uh, transporting. Uh, speaking of Zelensky, I just want to mention that people aren't aware of that. Uh, before he became a politician, he was a comedian, and I have been watching the uh, the three season um, political satire. Uh, which he did on television. It's now on Netflix. So anybody who's interested in seeing uh, you know Zelensky perform as a comedian uh, before he became a politician, you know, go to Netflix and search "Servant of the People," and it's uh, yeah, it's rather interesting to watch. That does sound
0: like fun. Because- Usually, p- politicians turn into comedians, you know it's the other way
1: around <laughs> not intentionally I,
3: I was going to say yeah, okay yeah, I was going to say that most politicians are comedians, but uh, unfortunately, most don 't know it <laughs> that's right yeah. okay Enough, before we get into any trouble
0: with uh, our listeners on that score, uh, Reuters reports now listen to this listen to this title. this is great. American Airlines gets favorable antitrust verdict and one dollar in damages. This has got to be a great story. Is this a battle-won, war-lost kind of story? I'm not sure.
1: Oh, it is. It is. When I saw the headline, I just thought, oh, that's the kind of thing where people just kind of groan. Yep, we won the lawsuit and we won a buck. And you think about uh, all the years. In fact, this this uh, lawsuit had been running for, for more than 10 years. Uh, so for folks who don't know, uh sabre uh Corporation runs a service which is used for booking airline tickets and yeah Sabre is something that I've known about since oh gosh the the seventies so it dates back earlier than that. I looked up the history uh Sabre came about. Uh, because of a meeting between uh, – kind of a chance meeting between the um, president of American Airlines and an IBM salesman back in the late 50s on an American Airlines flight. And they said, hey, we need to do something to improve uh, airline bookings because at that point it was all done on paper and they would uh, use Lazy Susans to store all the information about who's flying on what flight. And you can imagine that was very error-prone. So by, I think, 64, they had the system – up and running, and American Airlines owned it at that time, and basically you had uh, every travel agent basically in the world had to pay a fairly high price to have a terminal. Of course, this is before personal computers, a terminal sitting on their desk dedicated to connecting to IBM and the uh, the Sabre system. You move forward in time, and uh, Sabre got spun off from uh, American Airlines. They sold it, I think, in 2000. It became a uh, an independent private company. And then in 2007, it was taken uh, private by a private equity firm. So Sabre is uh, you know, used to be part of American Airlines. It's now a separate company. They got sued by American Airlines kind of through the back door. The antitrust suit was brought by U.S. Airways in 2011, so 11 years ago. But, of course, they later merged with American, which meant that American <laughs> then became the complaining party in the uh, the lawsuit. And they uh, essentially were complaining that Sabre... Uh, uh, Sabre impeded travel agents from using other less expensive alternatives for booking seats and it was unduly restrictive uh, and had uh, you know some kind of monopoly powers which by the way I think was part of the reason that the uh, Sabre was originally spun off from uh, from American uh, for all those reasons anyway this is a classic uh, you know won the battle but lost the war american won the lawsuit they were awarded a dollar presumably because the jury didn't feel that they had uh, any real economic loss or damages. And the people I feel sorry for are the lawyers who hopefully did not take this case on contingency. Because I'm trying to compute, you know, one third of a dollar. Do you, do you round that down to 33 cents or up to 34 cents? Well, how much do the lawyers get if it's on contingency? They probably
0: fight over that. <laughs> yeah, this uh, this, had been, this had been in court, you know, in, on and off. There was a uh, 2016 trial. And in that trial, the American won a little over $15 million from from Sabre uh, in that ruling. But in 2019, there was an appeals court that overturned the award. But now we have this uh, U.S. District Court uh, stab at this. And as we see, uh, uh, they uh, came up with a a result. I think both sides are claiming victory in this, but that's that's kind of what you would expect
3: what's interesting is that sabre is also travelocity uh if you've ever booked on travelocity they are owned directly by sabre uh if i remember correctly and uh, also sabre is the reason why southwest only books through southwest you can't uh, southwest doesn't use sabre because they're not going to pay the commissions to them so if you want to book southwest you can't find it on a third party site you have to go through southwest mm. a tangled web is <laughs> woven
0: all right south of the border in mexico mexico news daily a year later and mexico hasn't recovered its top tier aviation safety rating
3: and uh, micah what can you tell us about what's going on here well mexican airlines uh there's two categories pretty much of uh of federal aviation uh safety ratings category 1 which meets uh, all the icao uh, specialized uh, uh ratings of you know come up by the by from come up through the united nations and then there's category 2 which isn't quite there Mexico used to be part of Category 1, but uh, it was downgraded a couple of years ago, and uh, it has still been downgraded to a Category 2. What's interesting in terms of Category 2 is that throughout the world, there are only about a half a dozen countries that don't make it to Category 1. Uh, those include um, oh, Thailand, uh, Russia, Pakistan. Um, And and some of the other, well, Russia, I guess, would be second world, but third world countries. But to find that Mexico is there in Category 2 where Vietnam is Category 1, it's it's sort of an interesting thing to look at. So the implication of being
0: placed into Category 2 is that, and this is for a foreign carrier, that their level of service to the United States is frozen. So in other words, they can continue to operate the flights that they had been doing, but they can't add any new service or any new routes. That's all prohibited. And also, if you get identified as a Category 2 country, uh, code sharing with a U.S. airline, it, it can only be one way, right? No U.S. carrier codes can be on Mexican-operated flights. But the way this is determined is the FAA has something called the International Aviation Safety Assessment Program, IASA, I-A-S-A, International Aviation Safety Assessment. And uh, FAA has a webpage for that. We'll have a link to that in the the show notes. It was something that was established in 1992. And there is a four-person IASA assessment team, and they look at eight critical elements of a safety oversight system. They look at personnel licensing, operation of aircraft, airworthiness of aircraft. And they use checklists to evaluate a country. The IASA assessment checklists, which are also available on the FAA's website. And as Micah said, category one is you comply with ICAO standards. Category two is you do not comply with ICAO standards. And it's apparently been... A pretty successful program. I mean, the idea there, the you know, the the reason behind it is not to ding countries, but to try to bring up the level of uh, aviation safety across the world. And when this when this IASA program first began, according to the FAA, over sixty six percent of the assessed countries, these are with operators seeking U.S. service, did not meet ICAO standards. I mean, that's kind of appalling, right? 66% didn't meet them. But now, 90% of the countries with an IASA rating are Category 1. So I poked around. I saw, like you said, Mike, in the article, they listed some some countries currently Category 2. But at least according to what the FAA is saying, I found I found 10 countries in there that are shown as, as Category 2. Uh, and they're, uh, Bangladesh, Curaçao, Ghana, Malaysia, Mexico, of course, the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, Pakistan, Russia, Thailand, and Venezuela. So I don't know if I don't know which is uh, more up to date: the uh, you know, the countries listed in the article or the FAA's website. Either either could be. But if you're interested in learning more about this IASA program, the International Aviation Safety Assessment. The, the FA is extremely transparent about how it how it's done. Um, you know the checklists are all there for everyone to see, and and we'll have links to all that in
1: the show notes. I wasn't familiar with the organization of Eastern Caribbean states until you mentioned it, so I I had to look it up. I was sure that was not the name of a country. Turns out it's an eleven group, uh, you know, member, if you will, and it includes a number of islands like Antigua. Uh, uh Grenada, Grenada, Saint Kitts, Saint Lucia, Grenadines, things like that. So that's that's what the organization of Eastern Caribbean states is. Yeah, it was new to me as well. But
0: you know, if you're uh, <laughs> looking to fly on an international carrier or on a, on a foreign carrier, I guess I should say, outside the United States, uh, you know you. <laughs> Might take a look at this at this list just to see if the airline you 're contemplating flying on is in a in a country that has not fully met the ICAO safety oversight standards all right, uh, we talked about pilot retirement ages and the the notion uh, that 's floating around i think still nothing official about uh, raising the the mandatory retirement age for pilots currently at, at sixty five but uh, max uh, we've uh, we've we've learned here that not everyone thinks this is a good idea
1: now this is actually kind of surprising. We talked about this just uh, last week. There is a rumor which hasn't been confirmed that Lindsey Graham was going to be introducing a bill to allow uh, pilots to stay on until age t- 67 in the airlines. though so this particular story that we've got here from, from AbWeb says either 67 or 68, depending upon uh, who you're listening to. But surprisingly, an organization that's uh, opposing this is ALPA, the Airline Pilots Association. And they brought us some things that you know, certainly they are experts on that I would, would never have uh, thought about. Uh, for example... Uh, if this were to occur, pilots who were over 65 would no longer be able to fly international flights to other countries because most of the rest of the world has an age 65 uh, limit. I wouldn't have thought that. I would have thought, hey, if our pilots are allowed to be that old, they can fly anywhere. But apparently they would be restricted to flying just in the U.S., uh, and so that would, of course, displace a number of people from international trips who would then be flying just domestic trips. A lot of domestic trips are on regional airlines. Turns out there are very few people over age 60 (laughs) or 65 on regional airlines, so it's not really going to change uh, things much there. So it really results in a number of kind of dislocations that ALPA says really aren't going to uh, help. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, A captain who is the president of ALPA called the talk of a boost in retirement age, quote, a bid to divert attention away from the airline's mismanagement of the pandemic relief while attempting to weaken aviation safety. So, I, I don't know. Sure. That's, that's, that's kind of a, a strong statement, don't you think? Yeah. I, I'm trying to figure how they draw that conclusion. I mean, that's pretty pretty broad paintbrush they're using when they say that.
0: Yeah. I. Some of this doesn't completely... Pass my, well, I don't want to say sniff test, but because I, you know, like you, there are others who are more uh, intelligent when it comes to the issues here, but uh, ALPA did issue a statement. Uh, they say when age 65 plus airline pilots return to domestic only flying, I guess they're saying because they can't fly internationally, they will then displace more junior pilots and both cohorts may require training on different aircraft, adding to the training costs of air carriers. Why does Alpa care about that? I, I don't know. Maybe they should. I just don't know how. Furthermore, most regional airline pilots leave the regional industry long before age 65, okay, for more lucrative jobs at mainline or low-cost carriers or other opportunities. Therefore, the pool of domestic service pilots will not increase appreciably without additional training costs or disruptions. Yeah, I, I, I see the dots. I guess, but yeah, I'm ha- I'm having trouble connecting them all. And again, maybe I need to be more educated on
3: this, but I, I do have trouble with it. The other thing that's interesting about that, just in general, is that um, older pilots tend to take the long haul routes because they're more convenient. But as you age, um, as, as we all know, as we try to fight jet lag or sleep deprivation, it's a lot more difficult the older you get. And the long haul pilot's job is really a, a young person's job because you're much more, more capable of dealing with jet lag and, and sleep deprivation and the kinds of things that you deal with when you're flying those kinds of flights. But because uh, the benefit of flying long haul is flying fewer flights and working perhaps fewer days. Uh, it's Seniority, the way the seniority level works, um, it turns into a, a job for the the older, more experienced pilots, um, and uh, a, and so I, I can see how that would make sense. That if you have raised retirement age, the people, the pilots with a higher seniority, would be pulling away from the younger pilots, and uh, and and, uh, and because they'd be flying domestically. So it could change some of that. I, I saw you nodding along, Max, when I was talking about that.
1: Yeah,
3: Mr. Trescott, did you did you, did you agree sure. with that? Or? Oh yeah,
1: it makes makes total sense to me. And David was about to mention something there.
3: The ALPA statement is
2: kind of bizarre because it didn't sound like the airlines were pushing for this ruling. It was sounded like it was coming from Congress and Lindsey Graham. So I'm just curious where the where the airlines fit in, I mean I don't think they really want to pay someone an additional years and additional training and such. So I I don't know why why Alpa feels that it's the airlines driving this.
0: That's an interesting point. Another another thing that you know, comes to my mind is It doesn't seem to make sense to me to say that we should increase the, you know, the mandatory retirement age because we want more, we need more pilots. That shouldn't be the issue, the issue to me. The issue should be, are they equally capable as what we've got now, right? The the age is 65, right? That there's some reason for it being that age. So if you say, I want to increase that to 67 or 68 or whatever, I mean, the question should be, are there any reasons why people 2 years older than that should you know shouldn't be flying it shouldn't have to do with what are you try you know what games are you trying to play for employment or you know, is training. I mean, it seems like a smokescreen to, you know, to bring up all, all these other issues. Are they capable? You know, are people healthier and minds are sharper at older ages than they used to be? Well, then, okay, maybe you talk about increasing the, you know, the age. Are they getting worse? Are people's mental capacity and ability to, to pilot an aircraft decreasing? Well, then you ought to, you know, reduce the age. But all this other stuff, it's like, I don't know, it, is is this a lot of manipulation? It seems to
3: me, but yeah, I'd be interested in hearing other perspectives for sure. It seems that, uh, individuals or organizations are trying to come up with quick and dirty ways to increase the number of pilots that uh, that we have. Uh, last week, uh, you guys talked about the lowering the minimum number of hours from 1,500 to 750 hours, uh, which was a, a ruse over something else. And then we're talking about this. And it's like rather than coming up with a, a systemic solution, we're trying to come up with some quick and dirty ways to ease a temporary problem.
0: Yes. So I don't know. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing a lot more from you know people who have the the experience the, you know the knowledge the time and the energy to explore this in in more detail.
1: Well, and if I can have the final word on this, I do want to say that old pilots never die; they just fly a higher plane. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I Love it. All right.
0: Hey, another um, <laughs> another lawsuit. This this is kind of. Uh, Fascinating. This is from uh, the Seattle Times by uh, Dominic Gates, the aerospace reporter. Southwest Airlines proposed a ploy to deceive FAA on Boeing 737 MAX. And that's alleged in a legal filing. Uh, so, uh, you know, th- th- this is a pretty strong allegation going on here.
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting wrinkle. There have been so many things to come out of the 737 MAX debacle and this lawsuit alleges and we certainly have no idea how, you know, accurate this is or true this is, but it alleges that at some point in time Southwest asked Boeing if they could install a new flight control safety alert system on one of their older 737s, just one of them, uh because they wanted to have the same alert system in one of those older aircraft that would be required in the new 737 Max, and the lawsuit alleges that was for the sole purpose of being able to tell the FAA that the alert in the backs was not new, that it had already been used in older airplanes, so that it wouldn't trigger a requirement for additional costly pilot training at Southwest. I mean, this is pretty amazing uh, to think that, you know, if this is true, that uh, you know Southwest or some people within Southwest might have tried to, to game the system in a way to uh, reduce their Their training costs, again, we have no idea whether this is true or not, but it's an interesting allegation. Somewhere in the story, I think I also read that the contract that Southwest had with uh, Boeing would uh, basically uh, cause a $1 million penalty on each aircraft. There it is. Yep. Uh, The clause in the contract stipulating a penalty of $1 million per airplane delivered if it didn't meet the standard that pilots flying the uh, new aircraft uh, wouldn't have to uh, train in a a separate flight simulator. So basically, you know, Boeing said, hey, if you're, or Southwest said, if our pilots are going to have to do more flight training, there's a a million dollar penalty per airplane. We get the airplanes for less money if we have to do separate training for these, uh, these airplanes. So it's fascinating, fascinating lawsuit. And I think kind of a smoking gun perhaps is that, that,
0: that, that, Uh, flight control uh, safety alert that they wanted installed on a single older (laughs) 737 would be removed from that aircraft once the 737 MAX was certified. So that, I mean, if that's true, that really does kind of point to what's the true motivation behind this. But it's a class action lawsuit. It's brought on behalf of Southwest passengers who purchased tickets between the time of the first crash of the Max and the and the second, and they're saying that you know they uh, there was a harm to consumers in terms of price of tickets uh, because of that. So this could go on for uh, some length of time, I guess. But um, it's it's something that we just have to be careful that we don't assume that that this is true up front. But it definitely sounds pretty damning.
3: Well and if Dominic, Dominic Gates is reporting it there's uh there's some credibility to it. He he he's he's a pretty good reporter, aviation reporter overall and and offers credibility to to the story by reporting it himself. It's kind of like if I hear something from John Ostrau I tend to believe it.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. There are uh yeah, some aviation journalists out there that have uh, uh, reputations that are uh, you know worth counting on. He can dig. He digs out stuff that uh, you know others haven't haven't been able to. Uh, One uh, item from uh, this comes from the Dallas News actually, and uh, this you know people are such boneheads or something. I don't know. This is Southwest Airlines warns of free ticket Facebook scam.
1: What? Yeah. You mean they're not free? Yeah. <laughs> you mean I can't just get free airline tickets by going on Facebook? That's that's amazing. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating that uh, people are so hungry to get something for free that they will believe almost anything. So there was a Facebook uh, scam that occurred just over the past uh, weekend in which uh, Southwest Air fans could go to a website. And the whole thing was predicated on the idea that, hey, Southwest is celebrating their birthday, their 69th anniversary or their 86th anniversary, depending upon which scam page you were on. It turns out that they actually have only been in business for 51 years, but I'm sure nobody bothered to, uh, to check that. And it would then take you to a, uh, a Facebook page, which would you know, kind of uh, you know, lead you down the path of eventually not getting you free tickets on Southwest, but probably you know, capturing your information and, and other kinds of things. And the amazing thing is that they had received more than 1.4 million comments on this fake Southwest Airfans page within uh, 24 hours. So a lot of people very quickly were uh, duped pr- by this. And I guess the only thing, and I'm sure most listeners know this, there there is no free lunch. And there certainly are almost no free airline tickets. And they're certainly not going to be given away by the tens of thousands of Facebook. So buyer beware. See, I got an
3: email from a Nigerian prince telling me that there was a free ticket <laughs> waiting
1: for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, you know sometimes uh, consumer protection is is warranted, and sometimes you need that provided by the f- federal government, and and you know we, we all need protection. But then there are other times where you you just can't protect everybody that doesn't think about these things. I mean, th- this is the sort of thing where, well, the people that got scammed by this, they, I, I guess they didn't lose anything, right? They, the only thing they lost was you know they didn't get the free round-trip tickets that uh, that they were expecting to. I, I guess they weren't harmed in any other way. But, I don't know, gullible, it's,
3: it, I don't know, it's... It's the uh, it's the P.T. Barnum School of Air Travel. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Facebook,
0: oh boy. All right. Um, uh, last item, uh, update. Well, we had um, talked about the Portland Jetport. Michael about the uh, the runway rehabilitation project going on and we had an episode where we talked about the process for an airport to do something as dr- as drastic as having to shut down the main runway to be repaved for a length of time we talked about you know what the impacts of that are and and how you try to mitigate those impacts in a project like this and
3: for an update, Mike. I mean, the the project has started. How's it going? Started. It's it's practically over. It's June thirteenth is the last day, and it's all going to be opened up and ready to go. Uh, but it's been going really well. There have been a couple of minor glitches. They found part of the uh, Portland oil pipeline that they didn't expect to find. That they had to sort of. Uh, Cover up again and uh and, and cover with concrete but uh but it was running there, and it didn't slow anything down uh There have been some uh aircraft that have been uh delayed or 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 forced to go to the other airports based on weather because there's no i l s on uh on one eight three six uh the shorter runway uh but only uh i think just last I heard it was about twenty six aircraft. And uh right now we're at the point that uh, uh Paul Bradbury told us about where uh, the airlines decided that rather than close the airport completely for forty eight hours, they wanted to close down operations uh for six weeks from ten thirty p m to five thirty a m and we're at that point where the airport is closed overnight and uh and it's but it's going right on schedule and it's due to reopen on uh on June thirteenth The great part about it. Is that the flight path is right over my house, and I get to hear all those aircraft and see all those aircraft, and I can tell the difference so when when a FedEx seven five seven takes off. I know exactly which one it is, and I can tell the difference between an A three twenty and a uh, and an Embraer one seventy. It's it's just been fabulous. And in fact, I don't know if Paul's going to be listening or not, but he's going to get an email from me a noise complaint when this is finally over, and that noise complaint is going to be, can't you keep eleven two nine closed all the
0: time? <laughs> yeah you like those sounds. David, you lived on the end of a runway, right, Philadelphia for a number of years. Do you miss the um, you know the acoustic background noise?
2: actually, um, no because I'm still in the flight pattern of Philadelphia International. still oh. like
0: today tonight
2: as I was working out in the garden, we still I still had stuff coming in final. It's not as loud and as aggressive as takeoffs, but um, there are days that I get plenty of aircraft flying overhead. So I, I especially when certain individuals are located in this house in northern Wilmington, the flight pattern gets diverted over my house. So, um, yeah, no, I'm I'm still getting my full of of jet noise on a daily basis.
0: Good years ago when I was a kid living in Northern Virginia, not too far from, from Dulles, you know, we would get a, a lot of air traffic overhead and, and, you know, it's like when you live next to the train tracks, you end up tuning out a lot of that, which I did, except for, uh, when we, when we heard the Concorde, uh, flying overhead, then, then of course we'd always run outside, try to, try to catch a glimpse of that because that was, that was pretty unique. But, um Max, did you ever live at the end of a runway or over a, you know, over the uh, the pattern there?
1: No, I've I've never uh, been that. I will tell you when I'm in hotels, I always want the side of the building that faces yes. the airport because yes, you know, yes, I just yes. like being able to to watch and see what goes by. Yes.
3: And that was the best part of staying at the uh, at the Radisson Red. The last my last night in uh, in London is that it faced Heathrow. And uh, and if it wasn't that I had to get up early in the morning, I would have just sat there all night watching the aircraft go back and forth. But but like I, this has been great because I'm only a mile off uh, off one uh, eight, and uh, by the time they're they're over my house, they're no more than two thousand feet. So I, I get to see everything. It's great.
0: I love it. What's up with the geeks? David, it turns out that, well, you mentioned you've been to the uh, the air show uh, at Dover, right? Uh, yeah, I actually went yesterday.
2: I ditched the museum for a day to go to Thunder over Dover, which is at Dover Air Force Base. I got the privilege of taking my partner to her very first air show, which is always a really fun thing. What was nice was we had... Clear blue Kavu skies, fortunately. Um, it's not often you get to take to somebody to their first air show and have on the flight line both the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels sitting there. Um, so I finally got to see the Blues in Super Hornets for the first time. We left midway through the Thunderbirds because the Thunderbirds are just boring. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. You, seriously? You,
0: you left halfway through? David, that's terrible. Why? It's the Thunderbirds. You're gonna get heat, mail. They, they
2: they were they were supposed to start flying at three thirty. They didn't go up until four fifteen. Hmm. The Blue Angels were supposed to be flying at one o'clock. They were in the air at one oh one and they landed at one forty six for a forty five minute air show.
0: So is the uh is the is the routine different this year?
2: No, um, it's just a lot noise. It with the super from some with the super Hornets, it's a lot noisier. Um, good. It, I mean, that's, that's not a bad thing, but it, it's very impressive when the diamond does its burner turn, um, and points all eight engines at you, you feel it in your chest. Hmm. Um, and we got to see two high shows, which was really impressive. Um, Dover put on a very interesting heritage flight. Um, They celebrated the 75th anniversary of one of the squadrons by flying a C-17 and a C-47 in formation. That was really kind of cool. Hmm. Um, The other big deal was, yes, folks, I have been in the tanker. The tanker? The tanker. For the first time ever, I got to see up close and personal a... KC forty six Pegasus from the New Hampshire Air National Guard, and not like me, I actually waited the twenty minutes in line to go up into it. Um, it's different. Um, I sat down, um, and we'll have a picture in the show notes of the forty six and the infamous three D refueling console. It's located up at the con- up at the front of the aircraft right behind the cockpit, which was kind of you went in the cockpit door and pretty much you were right on the consoles. There are two side-by-side consoles for the um, air refueling system, the virtual air refueling system, and sat in it down and was given a very interesting instruction on how it works and when you use your 3D glasses and what cameras you can use. Um, It's a very... Impressive, very complicated system. I can sort of now understand why refueling is challenging in the aircraft.
0: So the, the for this is a refresher for some people. You know, previous tankers, you, the boom operator or whatever was at the back of the aircraft, looking out of a looking out a window, using their eyeballs, right?
2: Yeah. In the KC-135, you actually lied prone. On your stomach, um, the KC-10 got a little bit bigger, and you could you could sit in a chair. Um, in this case, you're not even at the back of the airplane. Ironically, I talked to um, quite a few crew members and the boom operator, and the biggest complaint about the air refueling system on this is you can't take pictures. So gone are gone are the days of beautiful photographs of aircraft coming up to be refueled because they're not going to be able to do it anymore, and a screenshot just doesn't cut it. Yeah. Um,
0: so what's the you, you talk about three D glasses? That's an aspect of this that I guess I hadn't appreciated. What, what's going on there?
2: There's a screen that they had dummies set up with a picture of a C seventeen that is a a screen. And they put on virtual goggles, 3d goggles to view the screen in three dimensions to be able to fly the boom into um, the refueling aircraft. So they they have a 3d projection system um, that gives the gives the boom operator a vision of the aircraft in a three-dimensional virtual reality kind of goggle way, which is, Kind of impressive. Um, so
0: it's not like a piece of cardboard with one red lens and one and one blue piece of plastic. These are like goggles.
2: No, no. Actually, they looked like the... If you've been to a modern 3D movie, you don't have red and green glasses anymore. But if you looked at these glasses, they were pretty much those covered glasses that you would wear at a modern 3D movie or a modern 3D IMAX movie. Um, It it, it was a very interesting – it's a very pretty aircraft. Um, It still had that new airplane smell considering it was only um, approximately 18 months old. But, yeah, it's definitely a major step up. I didn't go up and look at the cockpit because I didn't care. I've seen cockpits of 767s before. You know, and it, the, what I wanted to see was really the, the main heart of the system, which is the um, refueling system. And it it's a lot of cameras on the back by that boom. Um, but I'm sure it'll eventually get fixed, fixed out in 200 years from now. They'll be flying these things around still refueling <laughs> um, ships. But it really was a good air show. Um, Amber was a bit awestruck. You know, it, your your first air show is kind of always impressive. You know, and uh, the Blue Angels performed like they usually did. Um, and we were right show center. Got really nice, beautiful weather. You know, um, it's nice when your partner says, uh, "You go, go take pictures. I'm going to sit underneath this here wing." But she got to see things. We went through. We went through Fred. It is funny. You know. When you realize that you, you've grown up at a military base or and you've grown up around these kind of aircraft, you sort of get jaded, you know? When I was four years old, my dad told me that, you know, if you get separated from me, you go to the big airplane with the open nose and stand in front of it. <laughs> and, and, and that's true. We had a C-5 every year at the base for the air show, you know? taking someone who's never had the experience of interacting with military and the, the overwhelm, you know, the large parking lot, you know, the, the large space Dover's a very huge flight line because they store 15 C 17s and 26 C fives. They, I mean, there it's, it's a big airfield Um, and things like Harriers and F 18s and, and you, I'm so used to him being able to see him from a different light is incredible. You know, it if you have the opportunity to take someone who's never been to an air show to an air show and watch their watch the air show through their eyes. You know, I didn't take pictures of the Blue Angel sneak passes because you know it was really hard not. to, pay attention because i knew what was coming but watching her eyes light up when when number six number five went zipping by one direction and right directly above us number six came by i mean it it was fun to see that and um yeah it was it was a really good day um amber had a really good time she She's still asking questions today about stuff she saw yesterday, which is really, which is fun. It's a good conversation. But yeah, it it was nice to be able to go to an air show again and see it with new eyes.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. It's, you know, you're talking about taking an adult, obviously, to, uh, uh, to an air show for the first time. But uh, as you're describing her reactions and all, I'm thinking about the impact that air shows have on youngsters, you know, and, uh, you know, it's kind of similar to the, the impact that it had on, on her. And, uh, what, what a great way to impress, you know, a really young mind, in a lot of different ways uh, about the excitement of, of aviation. There should be like a national, you know, take a kid to an air show kind of a day or, you know, something like that. But
2: there was, there was a young boy, um, probably about, Maybe eight or nine who was standing behind me in the line in the KC forty six, and he's a stolen to his parents. Well, you know, see that boom back there that that drops down and that refuelate right? and 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 these 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 airplanes are brand new. And I I turned around to 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 his mother and I said, you know, he's spot on. She goes, yeah, he does nothing but talk about airplanes since he was two. You know, and I was like and and it was sort of it's like it's a really good feeling you know and and it was a good reminder to me on how lucky i was growing up you know i got to do things that you know what my normal childhood was was not normal i mean or i mean it wasn't what i thought was take for granted like you got to see the blue angels every year was not necessarily you know i it, going in and and seeing a a C-130, you know, they had a P-3 and a C-130 parked right next to each other on the flight line. And I said to Amber, I said, that's my childhood. (laughs) You know, that's what I grew up looking at so much. You know, if there was an A-4 Skyhawk nearby, it would have been downright perfect. It's really fun, you know, and you got to step back and go, you know what? It's really fun. And take somebody who's never been, because it's, it's a real joy
0: attendance was pretty good i would imagine
2: um yeah i don't think they gave a total but it was a fairly crowded flight line i will say i was sort of surprised that a lot of people left on i was there on sunday a lot of people left after the blue angels flew Hmm. which was interesting um but there was still a lot of air show left between um when the blue angels landed but there was a lot of people who picked up and left, and partly because it was 95 degrees on the flight line. And I have a feeling that it was just too damn hot. But And it was even hotter on Saturday, so I don't know how it – so – but it was interesting. Um, yeah, and it just reaffirmed what I already knew about, you know, if, if I have to see two teams, I'll see the Red Arrows and from Great Britain.
0: So. Yeah, that, that, they put on a good show.
3: That email address is i am really at Yahoo.com right. uh, and for any airmen that happen to be listening right now,
0: right, right, who are fans of the uh, Thunderbirds. All right, Max Trescott, can you uh, can you top that excitement?
1: Oh no! Um, and I'm going to have to run. I've got another Zoom call that uh, starting right now. But let me just mention, I am headed off about a week from now to uh, Raleigh Durham to pick up a Cirrus SR20 and bring it back so that's going to be a fun trip i always like doing a, a few trips like that per year so I uh, little hope the weather will be decent it's brand new uh, airplane i'll be flying back with someone i've flown with for several years and we'll just be uh, having fun coming back across the, uh, the country so that's it all i can say is for the the rest of the show here hey keep the blue side up
0: okay all right thanks bye-bye bye All right, Micah, you, um, well, I was going to say recently, but it wasn't really very recent. <laughs> you uh, did your Trusted uh, Traveler Program interview, your Nexus interview, and you recorded uh, for us some some thoughts on that experience, which um, I, I kind of messed up. I, I I forgot to play it like a long time ago, but better late than never. Micah, do you need to set this up or, at all or should, uh, should I just launch right
3: in? I think it tells the whole story. Back in December 2021, I mentioned that I was on my way to interview for my Nexus card. While this story is not directly airplane or aviation related, it is travel related, and as our good friend John Ostrower says, there's always an aviation angle. This story has one too. Now, I've been a member of Global Entry since 2016. The enrollment period was five years, so it expired in August 2021. For several reasons, I chose to switch to Nexus rather than renew Global Entry. You see, Nexus offers all the benefits of Global Entry, plus many more, for just $50. That's only $10 a year, half the price of Global Entry. The catch is, interviews are only available at certain U.S.-Canadian border crossings. Fortunately, living in Portland, Maine, it's only a four or so hour drive for me to a couple of those locations. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, interviews for the Nexus program had not been available for almost two years. They reopened on the U.S. side of the border on November 29, 2021. Although, due to the Omicron variant, all Nexus interview sites closed again as of December 20, 2021. But that's another story. I scheduled an interview for December 1. Unfortunately, even though I'd been vaccinated, had a booster, stayed away from people, and wore a mask everywhere I went in public. I came down with COVID-19 the day after U.S. Thanksgiving. The good news is it was a mild case, and it's also very easy to reschedule trusted traveler program interviews. After receiving monoclonal antibodies, I was fully recovered other than my sense of smell and taste, and I was feeling fine. More importantly, I was no longer contagious, so I was able to make the four-plus-hour drive to Calais, Maine, on December 15. It's a rough drive from Portland to Calais. The last two hours of the journey from just east of Bangor all the way to Calais is on a two-lane road through the eastern mountains of Maine known as Route 9, but referred to as The Airline. That route got its name because it's a shorter route to Calais than U.S. Route 1, and before air travel, the term airline often referred to Shortcuts, a beeline or a straight line between two points on the Earth's surface. See, I told you there was an aviation angle. My appointment was scheduled for 3.30 in the afternoon, and in order to leave me plenty of time, I left Portland at 9.45 in the morning. It was a bit strange to see that one GPS told me I would arrive at 2.15 p.m. and the other said 3.15 p.m. But it all came clear when I realized that the latter GPS had the address of the customs office in New Brunswick, Canada which is in the Atlantic Time Zone, an hour ahead of Eastern Time. That was surprising, as the office is definitely on the south side of the St. Croix River, the U.S. side of the border. Otherwise, it would not have been open for interviews. Canadian Nexus interview sites were closed. Had they been opened, I would have taken a longer but easier drive to the Holton Belleville Customs Office, which is on the New Brunswick side of the border in Canada. Even with a couple of quick stops along the way, I arrived in Callis right on time, an hour and 15 minutes before my scheduled appointment. I sat in my car and called the number listed for the office and asked if it would be possible to be interviewed earlier than scheduled. The person answering the phone was very kind and said he would come out to the car to speak with me. A few minutes later, a Canadian border service agent, came over to me and said he was sure he would be able to get me in early, but explained that he had to take those with scheduled appointments ahead of me if they arrived while I was waiting. He did assure me, however, that he had no doubt that he could get me in early. I told him I wanted to make the drive back on the airline before sunset, and he agreed that it was much easier to do in the daylight. If you haven't looked at the callous St. Stephen border crossing on the map, it's degrees north and 67.2786 degrees west, so far north and east that sunset is at 3.30 p.m. in mid-December. The Canadian border agent didn't disappoint. I only had to wait 15 minutes and was called inside the office at about 2.30. Inside the customs office, the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agent behind the desk asked me my name and date of birth. He took my passport, looked at his computer screen, and said, It shows your global entry expired in August. Why are you going for Nexus instead of renewing global entry? I told him I decided on Nexus because it offers everything global entry does, plus more, for half the price. He asked me what else it offered, so I told him. Nexus offers customs clearance into Canada and also clearance back into the USA from Canada at marine terminals. The agent seemed astonished and asked me how I learned all this. My response was, I read it on Johnny Jett's travel website in a post titled, Which Trusted Traveler Program is Right for You? The agent then said, I wonder where he got the information. And I responded, oh, that's easy. I wrote it. The agent laughed, and I went on to explain that all the information is available on the Homeland Security website, but you have to sort through carefully to find it. Over the years, I had done just that and wrote a post at Johnny's request. Being a bit familiar with security clearances, I knew that this conversation was not just small talk. This was the agent doing my interview and clearing me for the Nexus program. We made a bit of good-natured small talk, and it probably could have gone on for a while. These two Border Patrol agents were very personable, very professional, and very kind. Finally, I said, Don't you have to take my photo and fingerprint me? They said yes, and did just that. I was back in my car and on the road driving home by 2.40 p.m., 15 minutes later, an email came through on my phone. I was approved for Nexus, and the new card arrived three business days later, almost to the hour. This means I have TSA pre-check, global entry, and a number of other benefits until, as it turns out, August 2027. It seems the enrollment period was extended an extra year and reduces the price of membership to less than $9 a year. Other than the long and somewhat harrowing drive, it was an easy process. I really enjoyed kibitzing with the Border Patrol agents and, frankly, would have stayed longer to talk with them if I had the time. I learned a lot from them, including why they don't recommend registering your car on your Nexus Global Entry or Sentry application. In the meantime, I do want to thank Homeland Security for making it as easy as it was. I know, the words thank you, Homeland Security, are not words one hears very often, at least not unless spoken or written sarcastically. But this process was easy, and these two Customs and Border Patrol agents from different countries showed me just how nice and easy border crossings can be. For the Airplane Geeks, here in Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah.
0: Very good. It sounds like it was an adventure in and of itself, you know?
3: It was the the hardest part was was driving back on that road and, and let me tell you it, it it's two lanes it's hilly it's quick turns there's trucks going back and forth that that are going a lot faster than I am because I'm following the speed limit and I'm pulling over to let them pass me it was uh, just not a fun road to drive and certainly not at night.
0: Sometime we got to get Johnny Jetton on here have a conversation with him
3: that could definitely be arranged Johnny and arranged Johnny and I are, uh, are are in touch pretty regularly and and in fact um some of us here listen to Leo Laporte and uh I was on with him the other day when Johnny was was ill and uh and talked to him and and both he and Johnny said that if Johnny can't make it sometime I'm going to be substituting for him
0: no kidding wow fantastic yeah yeah with Leo very cool all
3: right onto some listener mail
0: we might make this a a regular uh, segment, uh, Albuquerque uh, International Balloon Fiesta, um, and this all started with my uh, thoughts about attending this year, which uh, which I'm planning to do. I think last week I said something about, you know, it was maybe like 85% certain, and I was going to work on bringing that up, so it's up, it's, it's right around uh, 100% right now, uh, but what you'd, uh, what you 've heard me ask is for people 's experiences at that event, particularly f- for the benefit of someone attending for the first time and we uh, We got a great email from Chris who 's a resident of the Albuquerque area He says he 's been to the fiesta about three or four times, and uh, he says firstly, as John uh, who wrote to us uh, previously indicated it is very early in the morning. John had mentioned you've got to you know sort of arrive pre dawn which um, is kind of a jarring concept for me right now. But he said, uh, Chris says, they do pre-dawn activities, including a dawn patrol, when some balloons will launch a bit f- before sunrise. The activities for the morning usually are done by around 10.30 a.m. as it starts to warm up. And that, of course, interferes with the concept of flighter than air. Flight. He said the big event in the morning is the mass ascension which is where weather permitting they launch a ton of balloons and waves it's really cool to see is unlike most events you are not fenced off on a perimeter this was this is kind of a really interesting aspect to this uh, to this event you're not fenced off on a perimeter he says you're right down in the field amongst the balloons uh, they will guide you out of the way as they launch, but you are right there with them going by you. You are also right there as the crews get the balloons ready for flight. A very unique experience with all that. He says, uh, as uh, or I mentioned, the weather permitting part, as it can get pretty windy here, even in the morning. And they evaluate each day whether they can launch or not. So you got some variability day to day, depending on, on the weather. And Chris says, uh, let's see, the, uh, the local news sites, along with the Balloon Fiesta site, will keep you up to date on whether it's a go or not. Now, I was wondering, you know, with sort of the same you know, general schedule each day, does it make sense to go for a week or is it redundant? So uh, Chris says, people do come for the entire week, as during the week, they also have special shapes events and other things going on, including night glows." which I've seen a very small version of, and it's very, very, very cool. Uh, Oh, here's which you mentioned in a previous episode. There it is. The special shapes are, of course, the balloons that are shaped like animals or even characters like Darth Vader. I haven't done any of the the during-the-week events and really only attended on weekends for mass ascension events. And then Max T. mentioned maybe meeting you there if he wants to do that. He should look for a hotel yesterday as most of the hotels in the Albuquerque area get filled up way in advance of the actual event. And uh, I wrote back to Chris. "I I actually have a reservation at an RV campsite outside of town. I made that like a couple of months ago. Uh, But he continues, uh, what I've found to be the easiest way to get to and from the actual event, this is a really good tip, is to take advantage of the shuttles that are available. The shuttles have special routes that they close off to local traffic for the week. So it's almost like being in an HOV lane where you avoid the traffic, which there will be a lot of going to and, and leaving the event. And so Chris closes, hope you can make it down as... It is a fun event. So, yeah, for sure. This is uh, this is going to be great. And then uh, we also heard from Joel, said, I was listening to the latest episode today, wanted to recommend that you look into the gas balloon race that occurs annually during the Albuquerque Balloon Fiesta. Now, this is something I had never heard of, the gas balloon. Actually, it's called the America's Challenge Gas uh, Balloon Race. And um, he said he has a, Good, Joel said, has a good friend who participated as a co-pilot in that race for many years. It's fascinating to learn about this race and its many challenges. In some years, the winners have traveled over 1,000 miles in this race. It's quite different than hot air ballooning, and I think you'd enjoy observing the preparation and departure. So this is the, uh, coming up this year in 2022, this is the 25th America's Challenge Gas Balloon Race's and it's going to it launches from Balloon Fiesta Park on October 1st and there are there are two big sort of world class gas balloon races and it, the the competition is incredibly simple the team that travels the the longest distance wins and that's all there is to it so they're going to launch on October 1st I don't know how many teams are participating. I haven't looked into that yet, but uh whoever you know whoever can travel the farthest distance is the winner of that of that challenge, so very cool
3: you know now it all comes clear i always- I never could figure out how Albuquerque ended up with a a hot air balloon festival, but you know Albuquerque is also very famous for its green chili, which is fabulous and wonderful, but you see if you eat enough of it <laughs> you can self power the gas burners, oh yeah. And and they also you know I was also confused I might have
0: mentioned this I don't recall I confused about I mean hot air balloon the hot air balloons that I'm familiar with they launch from a place and they float to a different place where they come down and so they're in a different so with something as big as this how does all that work There's something here in Albuquerque it's called I think they call it the box where the low altitude relatively low altitude airflow is in one direction and the higher altitude airflow is in the opposite direction so you can actually go up go down one direction in the higher then drop down and then come back in the lower and that's how you can launch and land you know at the same at the same airfield the same uh, launch site which is really cool so all right, so I'm still, you know, anybody uh, listening, you guys who are going, let me know. Drop us a line. The Geeks at AirplaneGeeks com. Um, we'll we'll see if we can organize something. It depends on kind of what day, you know, who's there, what days. As of right now, I'm planning on being there the entire week. Um, but you know, we'll we'll see if we can organize. And any other tips or information? This stuff has been really, really helpful to me as a as a first time attendee.
3: And what are the dates again, Max?
0: Um. Oh, you you were going to ask that, weren't you? I don't think you brought it up. I didn't bring it up. All right. So, um, David, do you got any thoughts on this? While I look up the dates, I forget the dates.
2: I'm looking forward to hearing your response to to when 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 you go. Um, I've never been, but it's so it it's always been on the bucket list. Albuquerque's very unique about that airflow system that they can take off and fly one direction and fly back. Though I, I'm. As much as I like getting up for air shows in the morning, I've discovered that yesterday it was not so easy to get up after working at the museum until midnight. Um, But then thinking about getting up at pre-dawn, you know, the last time I did that probably was 2012 when I went on dawn patrol at Oshkosh to take pictures in the morning. but. I don't recommend getting up that early in the morning, but, you know, it's once in a lifetime you figure out how to do it. Yeah, you figure it out.
3: And I wonder if our friend Grant knows uh, anyone who's going to be participating there that might be able to, he might be able to hook you up with, maybe uh, get you up in the air. Actually, he does, and um, he
0: uh, sent an email to me with uh, a possible contact for the event, which is October 1st through 9th, 2022. So it's the beginning of October. Looking forward to it. This is going to be exciting. All right. uh, Just, uh, let's see, one more, I think, uh, final. uh, Yeah, I think one more listener feedback from our friend Patrick Wiggins. And uh, this was pretty fascinating. He says, I guess mixing spacecraft and aircraft is the future. Hmm. He says, it would be fun to be holding short and see this thing land, though more fun to be in it when it lands. Hmm. So here's an article from a, uh, I guess this is a TV station, KIRO, Channel 7. Commercial spacecraft gets approval to land at Huntsville Airport. This is Huntsville International Airport, which is in Alabama. And they've gotten uh, approval from the FAA to operate as a commercial space reentry site. How cool is that? So the spacecraft that we're talking about here is the uh, Dream Chaser built by uh, Sierra Nevada Corporation. It's kind of like a mini space shuttle-like looking craft. It's a space utility vehicle. It's designed to transport crew and even cargo to the International Space Station. And uh, so NASA has awarded six missions to resupply the ISS, and this FAA approval is for reentry operations from 2023 to 2027. Uh, all of them with this Dream Chaser. What an interesting concept! I mean, at a commercial airport, you know, you you can look look forward to having a spacecraft landing. Well, you know, I hope they have some good spotting locations at uh, the airport there
3: in uh, the Huntsville International Airport because what a cool thing to see come down you know Huntsville has a long uh, history of uh, of rocketry that's where uh, a lot of the the uh, wasn't it the 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 army rocket uh, tests that took place where werner, werner von braun uh, worked in, in when he first came over here so they've selected a really great uh, yeah if if
0: you got to pick a place Huntsville yeah is a is a place to pick for sure patrick also noted um that we talk i think it was la- last episode we talked about the airline pilots who got locked out of the plane and who ended up crawling through the cockpit window of the the 737 to get inside. And uh, as we said in the podcast, you know, you can find the the video in the show notes. And Patrick says, "I went to the show notes and I didn't see the video." What gives? Well, I forgot to put that one in the show notes. So it's there now. So if you if you go to the show notes for ex, uh, for episode 702, uh you'll see the item uh, Delta Airlines pilot crawls through window of Boeing 737. And you'll find the video in that article. That's from Live and Let's Fly. And finally, Patrick said, in the segment on the U.S. Air Force's replacement command and control aircraft, David mentioned that they want four engines with the ability to fly on two. Patrick says, why need two when one will do? So the issue, well, jet engines having... Improved in reliability enormously since the fifties and sixties. Back in those days, you had four engines on an airplane, on a seven hundred seven, four engines on a seven four seven. You had four engines because on a long enough flight, there was a almost surprising chance that you you might lose an engine. You know, an engine might have a problem and go out. And uh, if you've got four of them, you know, for with three you can you can continue on. There's there really isn't. There wasn't that much of an issue. If you lose two, eh, okay. Now it's time to start to get real, real worried. Now you really want to come down and land. So it's a it's a matter of redundancy to compensate for reliability. So when we come to this Air Force command and control aircraft, you still want as much reliability as you possibly can. And so, just the Air Force just feels this is the way I view it, David. You can tell me if you if I'm incorrect in this, but the air force feels that the more engines you know the more margin you have for for issues the more redundant systems you have and and that's kind of their their feeling do you, do you think that characterizes it accurately david
2: especially when our people are shooting at you <laughs> yeah. with missiles that are heat seekers yeah okay you want to be able to continue your mission if you get a hit you know, it's not a matter of failure to do a mechanical. It's a matter of being shot at, not to mention um, the amount of power all of these aircraft, th- these electronic countermeasure aircraft, et cetera, you gen- need to be generated to, for all of their signals intelligence and all of their communication equipment there's a lot of electricity that needs to be generated and the more ener- ener- the more engines the better and if you lose one you know if you have all of that power out of one engine you know all of that electrical stuff running out of one engine out of four you specifically lose that engine you basically lose the whole mission so right max it is redundancy but there is there's an in depth more of survivability than it is more redundancy.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. So I can see the Air Force's position. I mean, it it makes sense. And of course there are fewer and fewer four engine planes out there. So, you know, fewer and fewer choices. All right. Thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We really, if you've made it this far, we really, really appreciate it. Thanks for sticking with us. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. We have a shortcut that takes you directly to the show notes for this episode, airplanegeeks.com slash 703. Our email, of course, is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. Love to hear from you. All right. David, any closing thoughts? Any uh, Anything you want to promote? In the next week,
2: we will be celebrating Memorial Day. So I'd like to say thank you to all of those people who... in. This case, we we just had Armed Service Weekend, Armed Services Day this last weekend. Um, Memorial Day is coming up. Think about all the people who've given their lives for um, this country here in the United States, and and relative, you know, think of all the people that are giving their lives for Ukraine. So, all of that coming up. Um, we'll see you in two weeks. But um, wish everybody a, here in the states a Happy Memorial Day.
0: Very good. Thanks, David. How about how about you, Micah?
3: Oh, quiet week going on right here. A uh, big thing coming up for me is not till uh, July 10th when uh, we just heard about the Spurwing Farm Pancake Breakfast and Fly-In. It's definitely going to be taking place as long as the weather holds, and that's Sunday, July 10th in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. And I'm looking forward to some pancakes and airplanes and hopefully seeing you, Max. That
0: is a great fly-in. I had a blast with, when I was there a couple of years ago, I guess, I guess it's been... It was just last year. Oh, that's right. Seems well, like you know, two years ago,
3: but it was just last year.
0: You get to be my age, and it just all kind of blends, to- all right, know. You blends can- <laughs> together. All right. Thanks. blends together. Nice. You can find me at 30,000feet.com, and uh, we look uh, forward to having you join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody.
3: See you all soon.
0: And thanks for
3: listening.